If you'd like to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking at this text in just a few moments. But let's begin by going to our Father in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful and we are profoundly grateful, Father, for Your grace and Your love that You have poured out to us. Father, thank You for the hope that You have given us in Christ. And Father, we pray that You might strengthen us when we're weak. That You might help us that You might continue to work in our lives, making us into the people that You would have us to be. Father, we are dependent on Your forgiveness and what You've done for us through Christ. And Lord, please continue to, to wash us clean and keep us holy and blameless in Your sight. Father, be with us as we go into this new year that we might serve You Father, we pray that You will be glorified, that Your will will be done. Use us for Your purposes. And we ask all of these things through Your Son's name. Amen. In our backyard is a contestant for the world's ugliest vine. The entire vine, which was once lush, and full of leaves, has been reduced to a matted collection of bare stems and leaf fragments. And of course, the reason for all of this ugliness is a plague of voracious caterpillars who engorge themselves on the beautiful vine. Even though it's almost January, there are still some caterpillars on the vine that are seeking to find those last vestiges of something green to eat. But there's another result. Another result from the green banquet. Numerous butterfly chrysalises dot the backside of our house. And with those chrysalises, God has set up one of the most mind-boggling events. We can appreciate the profundity when we consider the past and the future of a caterpillar as it hangs, prepared to turn into a chrysalis. To go into the past, well, the caterpillar began as an egg. A very tiny egg, about the size of a head of a pin. And within that egg was all of the DNA instructions to build the machinery, to build all of the structures that would become a caterpillar. And it did. And then one day, out of the egg emerges a very tiny caterpillar. It has, it has a head. It has the, the feet that it needs. It has the body. It has skin. It has everything. It's a, fully, it's a fully formed caterpillar, but it's very, very tiny. And then it began to feed on my wonderful vine. And now, as a fully grown, bloated caterpillar, it hangs by its back feet. Upside down. And looking to the future, what now begins, there's a master, a master genetic switch is thrown that releases a hormone into this caterpillar 
that triggers a whole bunch of genes and a whole bunch of machinery that's been dormant up to this point. And this master genetic switch begins to send messages that is going to cause the skin of the caterpillar to split. And it enables the building of a new exoskeleton. The instructions direct turning the entire caterpillar into this gooey protein jello from which the instructions are going to build something new. Now, the DNA information had originally built a caterpillar. But now, the DNA is going to build an entirely new creature. Different genes will be turned on, all in the right order, all at the right time, to build this new creature, the butterfly, with new parts, with new functions. Not only did God plan this fantastic transformation, but He's designed a mind-boggling process whereby a beautiful butterfly can emerge eventually from a caterpillar. Ephesians informs us that God has a transformative power that He wants to work within our lives. It's as every bit as real as a caterpillar's transformation. Now, as we look at entering into 2016, there's a question. What role will we allow God's transformative work to play in our lives? How are we planning on allowing God to change us, to transform us, to make us more and more into the people that He wants us to be in 2016? There's a couple of questions that might provide some sort of indicator as to the likelihood of that. One question is, what are our dreams focused upon? From day to day, when we get up, where is the dream? Is it all about me? Is it all about something? Is it all about God? Is it all about how God could be involved in many aspects of our life? The other question is, where will the source and the goal for living be Monday through Saturday and Sunday as well? What, what, what is it that's going to cause us to get up and to do what we do and to live how we're going to live and make those daily decisions? What is going to drive life in 2016 and how we live? Now, before we look to the future and, and how God's transformative work can continue to work in our lives, let's look to the past. Let's reflect for a moment upon what human brokenness looks like. Have we stared in the face the corrosive and divisive power of lies? Have you seen up close what selfishness does? Of someone who's living for themselves or something other than God. And then we, you and I, paid the price. Then we've seen brokenness in others and how it destroys life. Can we remember a time when we faced a strong desire for something that we knew was not right? 
Or perhaps someone else's sin deeply wounded our life. But later, we came to realize that it was how we responded to that that really destroyed us. Perhaps we did things our way. Maybe we became bitter, unforgiving, sought revenge. Perhaps we tried to protect ourselves by lying. Maybe we began to make sure it would never happen again. And so there was service to self-sufficiency. And serving created things. And if that be the case, then we've seen our own brokenness. Have we experienced a disappointment? A stress? A problem which we've medicated with drugs? With food? Shopping? Work? Or pleasure? Instead of taking that wound to God, then we've seen our own brokenness. And we're painfully aware of what sin can do and wreck and the havoc it creates in one's life. Now, the, the things that we're describing, they're common. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, these things are all common to all of us. None of us is unique. He says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to all humanity, all mankind. These are the things that we know. If we're left to ourselves, if God just leaves us to ourselves and says live and, and would not enter in at all, left to ourselves, we're broken, we're incapable of fixing ourselves and hopelessly insufficient to live up to the purpose that the Creator intended for us. Paul will put it very bluntly in Ephesians chapter 2, which we read earlier, that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. And he describes us as living out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. The flesh says, you know, I know how to handle this. I know how to move forward. And it wants to make the decision. Human thinking asserts, I got this under my control. Life is right here in the palm of my hand. You see, I just need more. I need more time to break this down into small steps and figure it out. I need more money. I need more people to like me. I just need a little bit more luck. The flesh and the mind wants to drive life. Human brokenness does not deny that at times humanity can pull together, smooth out some problems and do some good. People do. But it is to acknowledge that sin is pervasive in destroying sinless perfection throughout the world. And true spirituality is dead. And so as Paul would write to the Christians there in Asia Minor, Paul wanted to remind them God possesses a power to fix broken human lives. To create a spiritual life capable of living up to the divinely intended function that God has for His people. What we find in Ephesians is nothing less than answers to a whole slew of questions. Questions which we or others might ask. Questions like, am I really in danger without Jesus? How can God fix my broken life? How can I live up to the potential God desires for me? As a believer, what am I supposed to be doing to fulfill the purpose that God gave me? Envision, if you can... The Apostle Paul in prison at Rome, 
He's dependent on his Christian friends to bring him food, clothing, whatever else he might need. Rome's not going to give it to him. So the Christian friends bring these things. But they also bring him news. News of how churches throughout the Mediterranean world are faring. And sometimes the message he receives is encouraging that God's people are doing well. And sometimes he learned that spiritual disease had begun to infest those congregations. As Paul thought about the church in Ephesus, the Spirit moved him to write what they needed to hear. And in his words, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, entreat you to walk worthily of the calling into which you've been called. Paul writes those Christians there in Asia Minor, live up to who you're supposed to be as God's people. Now, what can repair our lives and then help us to live up to the potential that God desires for us? It's a two-part question. It begins with, where does this transformation begin? And then how does the transformation continue? Now, this apostle who had traveled far and wide throughout the Mediterranean world had obviously witnessed firsthand just about every type of broken life. He's going to unveil in the prayer that he writes in Ephesians where he wanted Christians to focus in order to live those transformed lives. Notice his prayer. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 17. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you spiritual wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. He goes on, so that you may know what is the incomparable greatness of His power toward us who believe as displayed in the exercise of His immense strength. Now notice what Paul is doing here. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, but he's telling them what his prayer to God is for them. And he says, I'm praying to God that God is going to give you wisdom and spiritual understanding to know him better. Paul is letting them know, I'm praying for you. And my prayer is that God is going to do something for you, that he's going to provide you this insight and this wisdom into who he is. So that you will know God better. Paul had a reason for beseeching God to grant spiritual wisdom and revelation so that God's people would know him better. Paul knew that even for those whom God had begun his transformative work, they need to be reminded that they do not create spiritual life. God, God has acted and provided. And Paul is going to point them back to, to the truth. We are dependent on God. God's people need to grasp what God can do in anybody's life at any age, regardless of what they have experienced, regardless of what they have done. We need to understand what God's power can do in our lives, in the lives of those who believe. We need to understand how we fit into God's transformative work. Paul directs God's people as he opens this letter up to look at where God's transformative work began in our lives. Our transformation began when we depended upon Christ. And so he begins this letter by riveting our attention upon who God is and what God has done. 
Look at who God is and what he's done. God shows. God shows us in Christ before the founding of the world that we should be dedicated and blameless before him in love. He predetermined us for sonship. What is going to enable destroyed lives to be transformed into blamelessness and holiness? What enables our, our sinfully wounded selves to become holy? He predetermined us for sonship in Him through Jesus Christ. It's in Christ. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is who our God is. Even before the world began, even before there was a process to turn an egg into a caterpillar, to turn the caterpillar into a butterfly, even before we were born, even before we sinned and ruined our lives, God was planning how He would rescue broken people. And God predetermined some things. He predetermined He would take shattered sinful lives, our lives that are alienated from Him, because of sin, and remake them into being His dedicated, blameless, and forgiven people. Now, how is God going to do that? Jesus. Jesus would be the tool, the instrument that God would use to make all of this possible. And knowing the truth about God prepares us to rely upon Christ. As we realize that God is good, God is for us, and God is working through Christ for our good. And so Paul prayed for the knowledge of God to increase among God's people. If Paul, the, the prisoner for Jesus Christ, could write us a letter, I suspect he would likewise pray for us. I want you to grow in your knowledge of God. In fact, Paul will spend the, the first three chapters of Ephesians laying a solid foundation about what God has done, who God is, and what he's doing through Christ for those who believe. Before he will lift a single finger to provide any practical instructions about how the believer allows God to continue to transform his life and to work in his life. He's going to lay and make sure you understand who God is and what God is doing through Christ before he gets practical. But a plan for change is not enough. The desire to turn a caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly is not enough. I have a plan, a desire for these to turn into passion fruit trees or vines and, and mango trees. But that desire is not going to happen. There has to be sufficient resources and power to make the plan possible. And so returning to Paul's prayer informs us that not only is God's power sufficient to change us, but he provides evidence that this transformation is not some psychological babble. God's transformation power is real. I pray that the glorious Father may give you spiritual wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. He goes on to say, and what is, he wants you to know, what is the incomparable greatness of his power toward us who believe as displayed in the exercise of his immense strength. Yes, there is this tremendous power for those who believe, and, and he's displayed it. 
And he's about to tell us where he's displayed it. How can the believer know that this power of God is real? It's simple. God poured out the same type of power toward the dead body of Christ and raised him from the dead. Transformed a dead body into a living, raised one. You see, Christianity rises or falls upon the resurrection of Christ. And Paul knew it. Paul is, is painfully and bluntly honest in 1 Corinthians 15. He knows that if Christ really did not rise from the dead, that if this is some sort of myth, if this is not something that is anchored in history, then Paul wrote in verse 19 of chapter 15, he said that the rest of the world ought to pity us. Because we're following a delusion. And we've devoted ourselves to a delusion if Christ has in fact not been raised from the dead. However, Paul personally knew that Christ had been risen. And since Jesus lives, Paul knew that everything Jesus has taught us, everything that he's encouraged us to do, Everything he's warned us against is reliable. The disciple can know that God's transformative power toward us is real because God has poured out a similar power toward Jesus when he took his dead body and changed it and made it alive. And so as he describes the power of God toward the believer, he says that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. If God has raised Christ, then the power toward the believer to change and transform is real. If I'm a follower of Christ, what has God's power done in my life? Although you were dead, just like Christ's body was dead, although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Christ. And the result is we are His workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. For this reason... Paul wants us to know about God's power toward the believer. Because if we understand that, then we realize what God's power does for us, it makes a difference in how we live. Paul's a prime example. Remember who this guy is? This is Saul of Tarsus. He has been radically changed. Why? Because he knows that God's power in raising Christ from the dead was real. And understanding that changed his entire life and how he lived. He's the guy who, although he had said and fought against everything Christian, he will continue to repeatedly open his mouth and it results in beatings, but he still opens it again. He will continue to preach and he will be stoned multiple times. On one occasion, he's so badly broken and destroyed, they think he's dead and they just walk away. His preaching is going to lead him to being shipwrecked, to being thrown into prison, but he doesn't stop. Now, might not people living quiet, respectable lives think that someone who lives like this is just a little bit fanatical in their faith? I mean, how would you react 
to someone who's, who's giving a message and they keep getting beaten up over it. And they just keep doing it. But is his lifestyle so surprising? Paul says, I have seen the risen Lord. Paul says, I have been granted a glimpse into the third heaven. Paul says, I've heard things that it's not permitted for men to say. I can't repeat them to you. Paul knew the certainty of the dire consequences that awaits those who refuse to embrace Christ. He knew the reality of becoming God's workmanship through Christ. He knew that what we tend to value so much becomes worthless after death when we face God and eternity. Oh, so you were CEO. <laughs> really? So you valued this so much. Really? So you, you have laid up these silos for yourself. But you were not rich toward God. Really? Without a shadow of a doubt, and although he initially wanted to deny it, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, knew God's power, had raised Christ from the dead. And this was a cataclysmic game changer in his life. And here's the point. The point that he's going to pass on to Christians. We are dependent on God to live. For gaining genuine spiritual transformation. This is not something we can do on our own. This is not something we can do by going into Barnes & Noble in the self-help section, grabbing a book about some good ethical things and some positive thinking and start to live a certain way and gain genuine spiritual life. Cannot happen. If as spiritually dead people, though, we have been buried with Christ, God's power transforms us, raising us up with Christ to a new and genuine spiritual life. God's power transforms the shattered and broken lives of the walking dead into becoming His living beings, His workmanship. Christians are God's transformed people, butterflies, if you will. And it does not matter how the disciple feels on a particular day or what thoughts might bounce around in their head or what questions they might still have unanswered. If they have been raised with Christ, then they are God's workmanship. And He has taken them from death to life. And while God's transformation of our lives began when we responded to Christ, it continues throughout our lives. And it is God's ongoing work in our lives that as disciples, we look to in 2016. Our transformation continues as we learn from Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 20, Paul, after he's laid this foundation and he's beginning to move into this practical section, he identifies in chapter 4, 17 to 20, the life of those without Christ. The life of those who live driven by their flesh and their mind, whatever they think is best. Caterpillars, if you will. Paul then talks about how Christians are to live. 
in contradiction to that. You have heard about Him, Christ, and were taught in Him just as the truth is in Jesus. You were taught with reference to your former way of life to lay aside the old man, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new man who has been created in God's image in righteousness and holiness that comes from truth. We continue to be dependent upon God for our ongoing transformation. We learn from Christ how we are to live. We learn from Christ what is valuable. We learn from Christ our purpose and meaning. We learn from Christ how we treat other people. We learn from Christ how we spend our resources. We learn from Christ who we are to be as God's people. And what we learn from Christ, we are to take into our DNA, if you will, taken to the very core of our being so that it can change us from the inside out. And we become more usable by God, more dedicated to God. He makes us blameless. He makes us holy. But we continue to grow and become more usable as his instruments. As Paul would write to one of his fellow workers, you know, he talks about cleaning oneself up so that you can be a vessel That's useful to the master. What we learn from Christ, we take deep into us. And learning from Christ transforms, continues our transformation in being those people created in God's image. In righteousness and holiness that leads to truth. Take, for instance, some examples. What we have in in the remainder of the letter um, to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, compassionate, Forgiving one another just as God in Christ also forgave you. Something we learn from Christ. We're to be kind, compassionate, forgiving. And we do these things in the same way that God in Christ treats us. Now, if our flesh and mind drive how we live, we might think, you've hurt me too deeply. Ever forgive you. Yes, whenever my mind recalls what you have done, I'm going to allow that little tape to play over and over. I'm going to nourish it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to hang on to what you did and all the pain that you caused me. From Jesus, we learn that God forgives us for everything we've ever done. We learn that as His workmanship, we're to forgive others in the same way that He forgives us. And so, As his workmanship, we choose to forgive. And if someone has hurt and wounded us so deeply that it's not easy to let it go, we make the determination that every time it does pop into our mind, we're going to respond to it by saying, I'm not going to meditate upon this. I'm going to let it go. God, strengthen me. Keep the evil one from me. Help me to live as your person and forgive this person. And then others see the beauty of Christ growing within us. I can't read this text without reflecting on a story and a moment of my own humanness. My wife was six months pregnant. Some guy drove in reverse about 40 yards against traffic and ran into her when she's pregnant with Our oldest son, he was six months. I arrive at the scene. 
and the fellow admits that it's his fault. No worries. His, his insurance took care of his accident two weeks ago. This will be a no, no problem at all. The insurance company will take care of it. Two days later, I receive a phone call. I'm the victim. Your wife hit my car. This guy has threatened the life, the health of my wife. He's threatened my unborn child. He then turned around and claimed it was our fault. I'm emotionally engaged at this point. And I discovered over the next few days that because I was allowing this thought to go over and over and over again in my mind, that I was losing the peace that I live with. And I was, I was beginning to have physical symptoms in my stomach because this guy was just making me angry. And then, sometimes it takes a while, but the verse comes to mind. I've got to forgive him the way God forgives me. And so I began to say, Lord, give me the strength to forgive this guy. I'm going to let go of this. There's things that need to be done, but I, I'm not going to hold this against him. And five minutes later, Lord, <laughs> help me to forgive this guy. Fifteen minutes later, Lord, help me to forgive this guy. And God is good. And it probably took about two weeks with the intervals becoming less frequent. But God is good. Or consider what we learn from Christ in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33. Each one of you must also love his own wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. If our flesh and mind drive how we live, we might think, I'm not going to respect that man. He does not deserve it. All the things he's done, how he treats me, how he makes decisions, what he doesn't do, he does not deserve that respect. Or maybe the thought is, she's not treating me right. Why should I go out of my way to seek her well-being? Why would I sacrifice and give of myself for her? And, and to be thinking and looking for ways to be a blessing to this woman when she treats me like that. From Christ, we learn to treat others based on not who they are, but upon who we are as God's people belonging to him. It's not dependent on what, whether other people deserve it. It's based on who we are as, as his children. And others see the beauty of Christ grow in us. And God continues to transform us. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, we learn, Be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His power. Clothe yourselves with the full armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We learn from Christ how to live, and how to live in a world where Satan is at work. And as C.S. Lewis would point, his greatest weapon is to convince people he doesn't exist. 
And so if our flesh and our mind drive how we live, we might think, I'm the master of my destiny. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need God. I don't need to worry about evil forces and what influence they might have already on my life. But rather, we learn from Christ. And so we put on the full armor of God and we meditate upon God's Word, letting it go deep into our DNA so that it remakes us. We learn to determine we will serve righteousness before we even encounter the temptation. We make that determination on how we're going to respond. We, we focus on that helmet of salvation, on who God has made us to be and what He has given us and what lies ahead as we go through difficult times. And others see the beauty and the image of Christ grow in us. There's so much that we could use for illustrations on how we learn from Christ and if we take it deep into us, it changes us. As we look at entering into another year, what role will we allow God's transformative work to play in our lives? Upon what are our dreams focused for 2016? Where will our source and our goal for getting up each day in the new year be? God has not yet granted you life through Christ because you're not yet raised with Christ. Depend upon God's power to transform you. You don't need to be able to understand everything. You, don't, you do need to decide that you will rely upon Christ crucified for you and whom God's power has raised to life. Are you ready to acknowledge Christ and be buried with Him in the waters of baptism? That God might raise you up with Christ according to His power so that you can become His workmanship. And if God has already begun His work in your life, let's depend together upon Christ to teach us how to live. Let's allow Christ's ways to go deep down into who we are, into our DNA, to transform us from the inside out in how we think, how we make decisions, how we interact. Let the beauty of Christ be seen in us. We're about to sing a song. It's a song about dependence upon God. Be with me, Lord. I love that song because we are dependent on our God and what He's done for us through Christ. If there's any way that we can serve or be a blessing, let it be known while we stand and sing.